0: Good morning. Today is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. We are rejoicing and we are glad in it, but we are also grieving today with those who grieve. Today is Friday, the 15th of November, 2019. And uh, at Saugus High School, just outside of, uh, just 30 miles north of Los Angeles in Santa Clarita, November the 14th is is going to be a, a day that is long seared in the memories of people. And it says something about America that um, when I started scanning, so, you know, I get up really early, I scan sort of the aggregated news stories of the day that everybody is going to be talking uh, about across pretty much every media platform. Uh, This is story number five. And it says something about America that, that this is story number five. On a list of aggregated stories that um, you know people who aggregate such things think that we should be thinking about and focused on today, a student at Saugus High School made a choice yesterday morning um, on his 16th birthday to take the lives of others, and um, and I would argue, you know, he certainly intended to take his own life. He um, he continues at this moment, at least in grave con- in what the Hospital is describing as grave condition. The shooting took place at Saugus High School. Um, two students are dead. Three others are wounded. The whole thing happened in a matter of 16 seconds, and the whole thing was caught on video. Uh, this was this is there's really very little mystery to this other than motive. Um, took him 16 seconds to pull a gun out of his backpack uh, in the quad before classes began, and he was found with a a self-inflicted gunshot wound to his own head, taken to a hospital, where at this hour he remains in, again, uh, the language is grave condition. Now, grave condition uh, is is some language I want to just talk about for a moment, because those are not words that physicians actually use to describe a patient's condition. Grave condition actually doesn't mean anything in terms of the medical world, but they are words that are used to very effectively communicate to the news media and to you and I and the general public, because grave condition provides a very precise picture of, um, of a reality that requires few details. I don't need to know anything else uh, once you have told me that someone is in grave condition. Uh, I, am, I am crystal clear about what that means. Why is that? Well, because the word grave in in a in a time when words have morphed to mean many, many things, the word grave still only means one thing. In a time when the meaning of words are sometimes hard to grasp, the word grave still only points in one direction. Culturally, the word grave points to death and it points to a place associated with death. A grave is a place where a body is buried. Now a grave is also. Uh, the place that has been utterly transformed and redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the only people, Christians are the only people in the culture today who have a different story to tell about a grave than everybody else. When we talk about grave condition for Christians, we're talking about resurrection hope. We are not talking about the end of everything. We are not talking about despair. We are not talking about something that uh, has claimed victory over life. We are talking about a God who has redeemed, even from the grave. The penalty of sin in death and the power of sin in life is conquered in Jesus Christ. He rose from the grave. The grave is empty. He even left the grave clothes behind. Are you living in grave condition today? One foot in the grave. Are you aware that there are a lot of people in the culture today living in grave condition, walking around like the walking dead? There's a reason that zombies are so popular in dystopian literature today, because that's where people are living. You and I, you and I actually have a different story to tell. We know the truth of the gospel. We know that the grave has been conquered. We know that there's hope. We know that there's purpose. We know that there's meaning. All right, I'm going to leave that right there. Um, But this is a story. This gospel story, this story of redemptive hope, is the story that we need to be telling with our lives, and we certainly need to be communicating to the next generation. Young people need to know that they matter, not because of what they might invent or do in the future, but because they bear the image of the living God, because he died to redeem them, because they were made on purpose and for his purpose, and they need to know that they belong to God and to the fellowship of all those who are living by grace in him with an eternal hope beyond the grave. What's your grave condition today? When we come back, I'm going to be talking with Matthew Hawkins. Uh, He and I are going to talk about people of faith in politics. We're also going to talk about the the role that rural crisis pregnancy centers uh, play in the nation today in terms of the delivery of medical care. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. My friend, my brother Matthew
1: Hawkins, welcome back. Good morning, Carmen. How's it going? Good to oh, hear. Good you to know, hear. You.
0: The word, the world is a mess, um, but it Jesus is. is Lord, and so you know that is yeah. uh, that is how it seems to be going every single day. The world is a mess, but Jesus is Lord, and uh, we're just going to continue talking about and juxtaposing that reality so that more and more people feel prepared to um, live authentically as Christians in a world that is very much upside down and inside out on most things.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: There you go. So, um, all right. Uh, people can find you at M.T. Hawk if they go uh, onto Twitter, and they can also find you at MatthewTHawkins.com if they go online. Um, let me just add, let's just start with this. Why why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you trying to help <laughs> Christians sort of like understand and engage in the politics of the day Um Like what's your, what's your motivation to do that?
1: (laughs) That's a great question and what a great setup. Um, well, I'm going to, I'm going to reference a quote in, uh, this NPR report that, that you sent me yesterday. Um, NPR is doing a, look, at least a multi-part, uh, series on evangelicals and politics. Um, and they're interviewing actual evangelicals, um, on NPR radio. And, uh, uh, it's a pretty fascinating, pretty fascinating clip, um, that I, I imagine I, I, you guys do show notes or something, uh, mm-hmm. that people post, um, And in it, they visited a church in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and interviewed a bunch of uh, evangelicals about religion and politics and President Trump. And uh, to their credit, uh, NPR doesn't always, you know, I think report on our tribe well, but so far I'm going to give them some points for this one because they actually showed a diversity within people labeled evangelicals. Um, they were recognizing that, uh, we represent, uh, Uh, more of a diverse uh, population than is often reported. Uh, They interview people from all age ranges and even multiple races, and I think that's helpful, generally speaking. But to your question about why I'm trying to do the things that I'm doing, stuck out to me um, with a a pull quote from an 89-year-old gentleman uh, who, among other things, uh, said the following, quote, politics is politics, and it's dirty and bad and everything that goes with it but it's the way we do business. And that's the way God wants us to do business, unquote. And I think that really sums up really well what, uh, what I'm trying to address. Um, poli- we, we, we're we looking at politics as a completely pragmatic, kind of cold, hard uh, category of things that we do in life um, that uh, doesn't we, we're using it, the dirt and bad, the quote, dirty and bad, uh, part of that world to, uh, excuse our own behavior or to define how we're engaging in it. Um, so we're letting something that's outside the church define how the church engages in that space. Um, and I, you know, to his credit, like I, 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 that, I think that's reflective of the way a lot of people um, think about politics. Um, and I think historically um, there are a lot of folks that were engaged in politics, um, evangelicals, um, that helped us get here in a negative way because they saw what can happen in politics. They saw things as dirty and swarmy. And so they – evangelicals say 100 years ago or so, uh, they withdrew from politics. So, well, what, is, what happens to a sphere of culture when Christians withdraw from it? Of course, it starts to look like the world, uh, it, and it looks more like the world. You could say the same thing about Hollywood. There's a season in which uh, Christian influence was uh, higher in, in the Hollywood space in um, its birth, and it got the reputation for being <laughs> sordid and evil and all this kind of stuff. So Christians withdrew. Instead of leaning into it as professional artists, and uh, I think politics is very similar And so now we're in a situation where a few generations later in America uh, That we get this politics is politics. It's dirty and it's bad, but that's the way we do business And I think it's a real problem for the church um, That that is frankly a political ethic um, that, uh, a, a citizen, someone who's supposed to be, uh, participating in this self-governing thing is addressing politics. And I think we can do better. Uh, and we, it's, we, you, it's hard to draw a straight line from, um, uh, scripture t- to, uh, the institution of the local church engaging politics, but I think it can be done. We, we need to, we need to uh, be a little more creative and a little more, um, a little more reflective on scripture and what, what, our principles, biblically speaking, uh, require of us in the public square and politics in particular.
0: I think it's also maybe here just important to recognize that if NPR is platforming this conversation, and they're doing so this early in um, in the political cycle, just in terms of the 2020 uh, race for the presidency, people in the culture are talking not only about the intersection of faith and politics they're talking specifically about the voice of evangelicals in that conversation and right. so part of why i'm motivated to talk about these things and and help equip other people to talk about these things is because people are talking about us and if people are talking about you don't you want to be in the conversation i mean i do yes
1: <laughs> yes and so
0: you know right like i want to provide i want to be the i want to be the evangelical that's that's present and says Wow, it's just really interesting to me that you have that perspective of evangelicals. I mean, do you you think I'm like that? Because that's not the way I think, and that's not the way I feel, and that's not the way we engage, and that's not the Jesus I serve, and that's not the church I'm a part of. Like, let's talk about this. Like your view, you know. So, um, so that's part of uh, of the motivation as well. Like, if the world is talking about it and using the language and assuming that they know things about evangelical Christians that are not true of us who are evangelical Christians, then I I feel like um, you know, it's something that. We have to be prepared to talk about, and you do a great job uh, equipping people to do so. So let's I'm take a break, so. and then, well, let's take a break, and then when we come back. Let's let's look at a particular subject matter that I know you are um, up to speed on, but many of us um, are not, and that is the prevalence of um, crisis pregnancy centers, particularly those that are mm-hmm. uh, Christian in their uh, in their funding and in their organization um, and in their ethics these rural crisis pregnancy centers that really are providing the front line of medical care across the country. And I think yeah. this is a, a important knowledge piece for people to have as we engage as pro-life Christians in the conversations of the day. So continuing my conversation in just a moment with Matthew Hawkins. Um, in the meantime, you can check him out at MatthewTHawkins.com. We we'll are right back.
2: We believe in God the Father. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe Okay,
0: I love this next story. Um, this is a story of of hope, and it is also a story of the way in which Christians are um, mo- literally mobilizing um health care into rural communities where people do not have access to health care and um they are they're just this is tell us what's happening here i there's no way that I can summarize this um and maybe you can, but this is a beautiful. This is in my view this is a beautiful story I know there's a lot of pushback from those who yeah. are uh who are pro-abortion but this is yeah. a beautiful story in terms of uh, Christian effort
1: yeah I, I think you're exactly right Carmen the New Yorker has an article titled the new front line of the anti-abortion movement um, there's a lot <laughs> lot to unpack in that sentence alone I know we're short on time today um but on the one hand I think you're right if you stick through the whole article it's a really hopeful thing and uh, a, good example of a christian witness i think in spite of what the new york is trying to in spite of the story that the new yorker is trying to tell frankly um you kind of have to have a trigger warning going into this because i was halfway through and i was like shaking my fist uh, because the way they reflect some of what uh pregnancy care centers and anti-abortion folks like us is uh kind of some common tropes um that just are not true but um, and also the fact that that's the new front line of anti-abortion movement. Well, you and I both know that the pregnancy resource centers have been uh, part of the front line um, for for decades as far as the anti-abortion movement concerned. but I think one of the things they're drawing out is that resource centers in rural areas are finding themselves uh, in, you know, desiring to serve their community um, by extending beyond the typical um, pregnancy resource center um, services and actually provide a a longer list of medical care because no one else is. Uh, And I think that is a really encouraging story and I'm grateful that they're showing this. Um, As one who has been on the board of a pregnancy resource center and as one who now is helping to facilitate um, uh, some conversations with my my own church about how we can better support our local uh, pregnancy resource center i just want to underscore a few p- points for people it's a, it's if you're not familiar with the ministry um it's a really spectacular i mean the front the front line is a is a catchphrase, a catch word um, nowadays but it really is there's no other way to uh, enunciate it um there are people who are working on razor, razor thin budgets uh but uh, Every, every group that I've been part of and and have met it, they're made up of a prayer steeped staff and volunteers they're very deliberate about what they do and don't they're prayerful about stuff uh, they don't they try they don't get in over their heads um, or overextend themselves they're really focused on the service to their community in some cases that's a Christian ministry other cases it's um, it's a you know a, a less religious nonprofit um, but uh, what often faces pregnancy resource centers is the This question of mission Um, drift—you know—to what extent do you do you as your organization locally identify as kind of an EMS? of the abortion or the pro-life movement, right? We're just trying to stop women from having uh, abortions, uh, and, and help them, uh, help them better, their you know, grow, um, and be discipled in a way that, uh, it doesn't, they don't, they're not found in that position again. Um, versus what this, these groups are doing, you know, trying to extend more medical care to the community. Um, that's a, I'm telling you, that's a constant question for pregnancy resource centers. They're, they're constantly, um, they're not choosing, between what to do productively in a good way or a bad way. They're, they're selecting and, and making hard decisions between different good things to do. Um, and sometimes they can provide good s- services and other times providing that good service is uh, mission drift. Um, but there are a lot of groups that do a lot of these things well. Um, and I'm grateful for the time and attention that a New Yorker gave to um, these resource centers. Um, and even in where it ends the story in the really hopeful Manner is that um, the some folks at our pregnancy resource center continued to engage and encourage and love on a woman who was a, a post-abortive mother, and uh, so and by the end of the story, she's uh, she's she's got her life together in a in a mm-hmm. in a really really good way, and that was all because of the pregnancy resource center.
0: That's exactly right, and that's where I think that I want Christians to focus um, today as we walk this out into the world. First of all, support your local crisis pregnancy center if you don't know that there is one and you live in a rural community it exists it's just underfunded and um and you can help with that like today today's the day if you're looking for a a a place to engage your like your local crisis pregnancy center is the place you are invited to engage today um i don't like the frontline language because it's war language and it's culture war language and i'm trying to you know yeah, make cultural sure garden enough. language but yeah. i also recognize that um as we take back more ground that the enemy thinks he has that it's going to be a war and it it, it yeah. is it's going to feel yeah. like that so um we need to be prepared to engage hey matt we're going to have to leave it right there thank you so much i look forward to talking with you again maybe we just stay on this topic again next week
1: Sounds good. Thanks, Carmen. Thanks so much. Have
0: a great day. All right, you guys, check out what Matt's doing at MatthewTHawkins.com. We'll be right back. How does your heart change? And what does a change of heart look like? What does it feel like? And why is a change of heart uh, essential if we're going to experience any other real change Um, in our lives. Like, why is it that my heart needs to be transformed in order that my mind and my body and my will will follow? Um, So I had a conversation recently with Alan Fadling, and I want to share that with you next right here. Um, Alan Fadling has written many books. One of my favorites is The Unhurried Life and The Unhurried Leader. But he's offered up a book that he co-wrote with his wife, uh, Jim which is, you know, like a precious gem, G-E-M. And, um, and he and Jem explore this, this question of what does your soul love? What does your soul love? So think about that for just a moment. What does your soul love? And up next, my conversation with Alan Fadling about that.
2: Do you ever think if you had more money, life would be easier? I know I do. Hi, this is Callie Breeze with Thrivent, helping you be wise and thrive. But here's the truth. The more you make, the more you spend. And then, well, you just keep wanting more. So how do you stop this constant craving for more? What works for me is always being grateful to God for what I have. So try it. Honestly, it's a privilege to give thanks every day for all the gifts God has provided. The food on your table, the roof over your head, and the people who bring you joy. And at the same time, remember you have enough. You may not have everything that's on your list, but if you can take care of yourself and your family, prepare for the future, and give something to others, you are already living in abundance. So be grateful for what you have, and you can live a more content, confident, and generous life.
0: Welcome back. Thrilled to be joined today by Alan Fadling. You may know him as the author of An Unhurried Leader or An Unhurried Life. Uh, You may also know him as a certified spiritual director. You can find him on Twitter at Unhurried unhurried Living. That's U-N, hurried living, Unhurried Living. Alan Fadling, welcome to Mornings with Carmen.
3: Thank you. Appreciate your invitation.
0: So the the book that we have before us today is What Does Your Soul Love? And What Does Your Soul Love? is really a book about um, eight great questions that reveal God's work in us, and it is not something that you wrote by yourself. So why don't you talk about where this uh, book emerges from?
3: Yeah, well, thanks for asking. So, yes, my wife and I uh, wrote this together after I finished An Unhurried Leader I didn't have a clear sense of a, a next book I wanted to write, and yet we did have a sense of something we wanted to write, which is simply to say a book about change, a book about the invitation in the New Testament to be transformed. We, we think this is what Jesus, in a sense, came to announce when he says, you know, repent, the kingdom of God is near. Some people hear repent and think it's a bad news word but it's actually wonderful news. It's an inviting word, it says we can change. And that, that was at the heart of what we together wanted to say in this book.
0: All right. And as I, um, as I picked up, what does your soul love? Eight questions that reveal God's work in you. Two things I think caught my attention first. Mm-hmm. One, one is that this is, this is more like a workbook than it is a mm-hmm. book that a person would read. So what kind of work are you hoping that the reader will engage in when they pick up this book?
3: Well, I think, so since the, the heart of the idea is this invitation to change, the question is, what will change look like? Well, it will look like changing in the direction of who Jesus is and, and how Jesus lives. But these eight questions are some of the places in which my wife, Jim, and I have experienced that change in tangible Life-long sorts of ways addressing issues of fear, in, engaging with God in the midst of seasons of pain, dealing with the fact that we sometimes hide, and learning how to be more vulnerable in the presence of God. Learning how joy energizes us. These are the these are the themes of some of these questions. And our belief is that if you lean into questions like these. You'll find yourself on a continuing journey with Jesus into the change that he's inviting us to. And when, like I have sometimes done, when I avoid these questions, uh, that's when I find myself sometimes stuck.
0: Okay, getting stuck and getting unstuck is actually uh, a place where you spend some time in other books as well that I'm uh, that I'm familiar with. Um, I think that when you talk about fear, which this question in chapter seven, what are you afraid of? I think that um as I consider these questions, I probably know more people who get stuck right there than anywhere else. And I am not I am not sure, Alan, what it is that um the, the people who I have in mind right now, what exactly they fear, because they are people who say that they are Christians, but they yeah. are not living lives that are free of fear.
3: Yeah. Yeah, it's um it's a huge human reality. I mean, think of how many times do the story of the scriptures that God or a messenger from God says some form of do not fear. And, you know, there's so many things we can be afraid of. We're afraid of f- failure. We're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid, you know, God won't love us. Uh, we're afraid of countless things. And yet the answer that God keeps giving in one form or another to this matter of fear is, not hey it's going to be okay or you're great you're you're you know moses you know you'll you'll just you know you'll just do a great job when you go into egypt you know the way god answers fear is simply to promise presence he says i'll be with you and what i've learned is that when i'm on the path that god has me on there will be some fear but learning that that fear is not isolating me i'm not stuck with it i'm not alone with it but god is with me and bigger than that which i fear and uh, that's been huge for me. To, to When I wrote the first book, I had to lean into some fears of, will anybody want to read this? Will, will this book matter? Will it help anybody? And uh, of course, it's, it's, it has helped people, but I didn't know that before I wrote it. So there's so many ways in which fear becomes, instead of a barrier that keeps me from something, it, it's actually an invitation to lean into something with God and find our next step uh, in this transforming journey.
0: I'm talking with Alan uh, Fadling about his latest book, a book that he wrote with his wife, Jim. The, uh, the book is What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. Alan, this is God's work in us. Um, I think that's a critical point here. This is a book, though, about real change. And I think that for a lot of people, the first question is, is change, is real change possible? Mm-hmm. And part of what you guys do in this book is because you're telling much of your own story, you are revealing the answer to that question is yes.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's it's easy to be afraid that the answer is no. We can perhaps all of us see some places where we've been stuck or we've revisited um, bad habits or attitudes or places of temptation to which we've fallen. And we can begin to feel in the face of those things hopeless. But the reality is that the message of the gospel is that there's someone who's begun a good work in us. And that someone is fully committed to finishing that work until it's done. The good news is that someone isn't me. Now, I want to change. But the great news is that this is something—this is God's project. This is God's plan. Now, the challenge for me has been that I have t- sometimes settled for looking transformed instead of being transformed. And this is where the genius of Jesus comes into play. What Jesus does is he addresses the heart. He doesn't start with what I do in my behavior. He doesn't start with even just uh, you know my relationships. He starts with what's happening in my heart. He wants to make the tree good to use that line from the gospels. And that's the kind of change, though it takes a while, it's the kind of change that can last.
0: So I'm going to continue my conversation in just a moment with Alan Fadling. And uh, my listeners, Alan, will know that I am a fan of the back of the book. And so when Mm -hmm. we come back, um, I want to turn not only to the appendices, which I love, but I want to Mm -hmm. turn to the acknowledgements. And I want to ask why the acknowledgements come um, at the end of this book. And then I want to talk a little bit about the importance of of the work of other people alongside us uh, in these journeys. So, that conversation mm-hmm. up next with Alan Fadling when we return. There's never been a moment I was not held your arms. And there's never been a day when you were not who you say you are. Resuming my conversation now with Alan Fadling, we're talking about uh, his newest book, What Does Your Soul Love? a book he co authored with his wife, Jim. Um, and Alan, my listeners know uh, I am a big fan of appendices, mm. and so one of the one of the things that I do love about this book is the creative spiritual practices, which I'd love for you to introduce people to, and mm. then um you really do offer in this at the very end this process for transformation, and I think people will appreciate that there that that is in here, that the process itself is in here.
3: Yeah. So the, the what's beautiful about these appendices is these really are something that my wife uh, over time be, uh, collected in terms of the practices. So these are a number of practices that we have found both personally helpful, as well as practices we've found as we come alongside, especially Christian leaders, that can help them lean more into this transforming communion with God into which we're invited. So, you know, there's, there's things, um, you know, the name of our ministry is Unhurried Living. And when we say unhurried, we're, we're saying taking time for the things that matter. It's not about doing less stuff, but it's making time for what matters. And so these practices, things like taking some time to get into nature or go and visit a museum and see the way God's expressed his creative beauty through human means like painters, or listen to some music, not as background to the work you're doing, but actually as an engagement in itself. And we think these practices help us to become more awake to the fact that God's always with us, and that the God who is with us loves us. We're not changing so he'll love us. He loves us so we can change. And getting that in the right order is, is huge. So again, these practices help us. And then that little process for transformation is a beautiful little guide that both my wife and I use, but it originates with her. And it's just little simple prompts, like, are you open to change? Uh, We have to start with that question. Do you want to change? It sounds like a silly one. We would like to think most Christians would say yes to that question. But it's a very good question to ask ourselves frankly and honestly in the presence of God. Do I want that? If at this moment I do not, what I ought to do is acknowledge that and come into the presence of God and say but I'd like to be open to change. And even there, God can work within us to will and to act uh, in keeping with his good purpose.
0: I loved the encouragement to find a chapel. I'm just going to I'm going to read it. It says, mm-hmm. find a church or retreat center in your area that has a beautiful chapel or sanctuary. Many modern churches meet in uninspiring business park buildings. However, there are still a few churches and retreat centers uh, built you know, a few years ago that have some old world charm and maybe even a stained glass window mm-hmm. or two. I would add to this list um college uh college campuses lots yes. of chapels underutilized on college campuses and um for those who live close to a hospital that was um in any way affiliated at any point in time with, uh, with a church or with Christians, it will have a chapel in it as well, and it's open 24 hours. So just encouragement there that in addition to churches and retreat centers, I would put um, college uh, college campuses as well as lots and lots of hospitals that have um, chapels as well. I find that a particular particularly good encouragement in terms of the creative spiritual practices. Alan, I'd love to talk with you about the acknowledgments. Um, first of all, it's a little surprising that the acknowledgments come at the end of the book. So I'd like you to comment about that. And then um, I, would, I would appreciate if you would comment on the importance and the value of other people in this process. Both you and Jim in this, um, in the acknowledgments, you talk about individual people and constellations of people who have obviously been essential to this work that God has been doing in you individually and in you as a couple, and so I think that's a part of the conversation. I want people to be encouraged on as well.
3: Yeah. So as far as the question of acknowledgments coming at the close, I think if I'm remembering right, uh, it comes at the beginning in my first two books. I don't know that I had a strategic reason for doing this. As I think about it, though, what I love about the idea of them coming last is it's it's a it's a it's a way of having kind of a, a climax to the book that acknowledges that this journey we've been on has indeed been something that is not our own doing, that just as surely as God has been an initiator in this transforming journey we've found ourselves on for a number of decades now, God has also been kind enough to use people along the way. You know, in our 20s, God brought along some uh, adults who were kind of big brother and sister or mom and dad aged, who had lived this journey for a while, who took us under their wings, who were a voice of Jesus for us, who woke us back up to simple first things that we had in our sort of adolescent busyness forgotten. And they were the ones who helped us do what Eugene Peterson describes as live a a long obedience in the same direction, whereas we had been living in a frantic you know, loop, uh, lapse around the same little circle year by year by year. And so uh, we both feel a deep sense of debt, not just as acknowledgments are uh, for the content of the book and, and how people helped us in this little two-year writing window, but much more so for the people God's used. I think it's good for any one of us to take a moment occasionally— We've just come through in our tradition, November 1st is All Saints Day. It's a day to remember the men and women of God who've made a difference in our lives. And in our church gathering, I sat and just wrote the names of some uh, people who have gone on, who without their lives, I would not be where I am, and I would not be who I am. And I think that's a good thing for us to acknowledge in our somewhat individualistic Western culture. We need one another. We were made as a body, and that's how we change.
0: So as we conclude this conversation, and again, I'm talking with Alan Fadling, I'm just going to encourage everybody to go to unhurriedliving.com. You can not only find uh, a link to What Does Your Soul Love?, but you can also find a link to many of the other resources in the Fadling's ministry. So it's unhurriedliving.com. I would love for you to share with us the value of um, finding and then engaging with a spiritual director. I have longed for one and don't have one. So um, talk with us about the value of having uh, a spiritual director.
3: So I've had the privilege of being involved in this kind of work for almost 20 years now. And uh, it's been a journey of finding people, whether they have the formal title of spiritual director, which is to say they've taken some training and they've gone down this route, A spiritual director is simply someone who comes alongside us to encourage and listen together with us to how God may be speaking in our lives, how God may be guiding us in our lives. And so I would say there are some of us who may find a person like that who has particular training, but there may be many more of us who would find a seasoned saint just a few steps ahead of us on the journey, a man or a woman of prayer a person who we would say, just by the fruit of their lives, there's there's something of the flavor of God's presence about them, that they might be the very kind of person that we could come to, we could share our hearts, we could talk about our dreams, our hopes, our struggles, our wrestlings. They could be a person who would listen not to solve the problem, which is not the focus of spiritual direction, but more so to help us foster our continuing deepening of our communion with God. That's at the center of what spiritual direction is. So someone, any one of us who's hungry for that, I would simply say, God, would you guide me to a person? Would you widen the scope of my looking? Um, Help me to see someone I might not have looked for who could encourage me from that place a few steps down the road from me. In this growing relationship, and I think it's the kind of prayer that God would enjoy answering
0: Alan Fadling, thank you so much for all of the ways that you have inspired and encouraged us over the years. Thank you for the gift of this book. please thank Jim as well for her contributions uh, to it. I know that this is a, this is a work that you have done together and and offer it to us um, uh, from from both of you. So the book is What Does Your Soul Love? Eight Questions That Reveal God's Work in You. You can find out about the book and everything uh, about their ministry at unhurriedliving.com. Alan, thanks so much. Thank you. We'll be right back. All right, I'm just reading a troubling headline that uh, my producer sent me, Paul Perot. Um, apparently there's... Uh, there's an attempt to change the way that um, our a commission in the United States, uh, the Commission on International Religious Freedom, um, the way that it's governed and managed. And so let's be praying about that. Let's be praying um, that, uh, that they would remain independent and free to do what they're called to do, being these watchdogs of religious freedom around the world. Uh, this is a critically important commission and it needs the freedom to operate um, in it. it, And, you know, we're not talking about something that's super expensive. I think they've got like a four and a half million dollar budget over four years. Like this is not in terms of government spending. This is a this is seriously small potatoes. Um, So they should be reauthorized to do what they do without a lot of uh, government encumbrance, particularly from those who don't understand religious freedom as true freedom. Okay. so anyway, that's my uh, that's my 30 second pitch on that. Hey, we got a whole nother hour together. I am really excited about the conversations that are coming up, particularly those with Adam Holtz and with Bruce Ashford, some of our Friday favorites. Um, Thank you for those of you who have uh, texted in during the half an hour that I was talking with Alan Fadling. Um, Just an encouragement that uh, somebody texted in, hey, if I'm thinking that I'm not enough, is that really just a fear of failure? I don't think so. I think that when we um, consider that we are not enough, we're actually disregarding the reality of Christ's all-sufficiency. And we're already dead, you know, in Him. Like, right? We are dead and alive in Him. And so if I'm already dead, Galatians 2.20, if I'm already dead and I'm alive again in Christ, and He is all-sufficient, and He is the one um, who is now doing what He wants to do in and through my life, then if I imagine for a moment that I am not enough, and this is not about, like, arrogantly thinking that we're enough. This is actually about humbly acknowledging that we are um, nothing and that Christ is everything. And so if for a moment I think, oh, gosh, I'm insufficient for that, I'm not enough for that, and I and I therefore fail to do it, I'm actually suggesting that Christ is not enough for that or Christ is insufficient for that. And nothing could be further from the truth, literally. And so that is, you know, a lie of the liar that we are tempted to believe. And so let me encourage you, when that happens, when you're feeling that, when you're sensing that, when that thought passes through your mind that you are not enough or you are insufficient, I want you to, in Christ, lay, lay hold of that thought. Let Christ seize that thought and take it captive to himself, for he is all-sufficient. we got another hour of Mornings with Carmen up next.